If you are newer to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have it. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some things that go a little bit deeper into the Planting Roots Remix with a little video link. You can watch a video, have some questions. And over here, there's some notes that goes deeper into what we're talking about today as well as some questions. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. You'll get the sermon notes versus questions, all that goes along with today's message. And today is 9-11. And I just thought briefly I would kind of give you a little call because the message is going to kind of go with what... We're thinking about it. Nine when, when I when I first heard about nine eleven, I, w- I was one of my friends called me and said, "Are you watching TV?" And I said, "No, it's in the morning. I should be working." And and he goes, "No, you need to turn the TV." And so I did. And I thought it was a joke. I didn't think it was real. And I remember all of this this anger and this backlash that came around, and and rightly so. Okay, I'm not saying we we shouldn't. Have. But, but I, I noticed that a lot of people who even call themselves believers didn't really step into a place of our first thought was maybe we should pray for these people. You know, because there, there's something there that, that makes them angry enough that wants to do this thing. And so our first thing is that we should pray that they would come to know Jesus. Because unity in our world will come when we center around the person of Jesus Christ. And by a lot of times hurling insults at one another, it doesn't do anything to make the situation better. Now, I do believe there are times that, that we need to fight and that we need to defend and stand up, and, and, and I'm, I'm there, okay? Uh, but I also think our first course of action should always be to pray. To pray, because I think when we pray, it'll, God will not only do an amazing work in them, God will do an amazing work in us and begin to work on our hearts so we start to live in a place of forgiveness and grace and hope. That really goes into kind of what we're talking about today as well, so why don't you stand with me, reading of God's Word. This is Acts 11, verses 1 through 3, and it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in the understanding of your witness and call to us that we would understand how you draw us in, and that we have also been sent out to be your witnesses in the world around us, and that we would honor you by how we live as those witnesses. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we have less than a month before we end the first half of the book of Acts. This is week 32. We're going to end at 36 weeks. Uh, going through Acts, we want you to see a few things. The beginnings of the early church, what God did, how he moved his people forward. We also hope that one day if you do leave Santa Maria or I say something offensive to you and you leave Element, that you will know what to look for in a church. And we always say look for because nobody does it perfectly, but we're trying. And so we want you to be in a church that loves Jesus, that preaches the truth, but is also humble enough to admit its mistakes when it's wrong, but also stand by the vision that God gave it. Now we have walked through all these places in the book of Acts where God has continued to push his people's limited vision about who he came to save. Sometimes God does that with us as well. And if we took out last week and go to the two weeks before that in Acts chapter 10, God pushes his people even farther by going to a Gentile. God reveals himself to 
to a Gentile, and that has that Gentile send for the apostle Peter, and then Peter comes and tells them about the good news and the message of Jesus, and then that Gentile believes, and his household, and the Holy Spirit comes on them just like it did for the original apostles at Pentecost, thus proving that these Gentiles, who they thought were so out of line that God would never save them, it proved that they could also be in the family of God. And you'll see today the Jews in Jerusalem, they don't really understand that. They have a hard time believing that God would ever save those people. Well, that God would ever give the same gifts to them that he was given to us because, hey, it's us. And we're so great and wonderful, and they're just horrible people. Now, Tim Keller tells this story about his friend. His name is Harvey Kahn. And Harvey Kahn was a missionary in Korea for many years. And when he's in Korea, the main focus of his ministry was trying to get women out of prostitution. And so he'd go in and he would, and he would talk to them. But one of the difficulties of working with prostitutes in this Confucian-based society is that they saw themselves as the lowest of the low. Whatever the lowest of the caste was, they were even lower than that. And so they completely hated themselves. And he would say to them, Jesus died for you to redeem you. He wants to bring you into relationship with him. He loves you. He's offering you salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. And they would respond with, oh, no, oh, no. God would never want me. Do you know what I do? He would never want anything to do with us. We're just so unclean. And so Harvey Kahn's praying about, God, how do you want me to talk to them about you to, to help your message get across? And he gets this idea to start talking about God's election and predestination, that it is God who first comes and speaks and draws on our hearts. So he goes and he starts talking to them. And he says, I believe in a God of grace. And I believe that, that nobody seeks God unless God draws on their hearts and starts pulling them towards him. And he, and he says, do you, do you want this God who redeems and loves and restores and gives you the life that, that he meant for you to have? And they would say, well, yeah, I want that. And he would say, Bam! Then that proves that God is already working on your heart, and God does love you, and God does want to be in relationship with you. And all of a sudden, these women started to believe, because it's the witness of how God seeks and saves us. Then they'd say things like, meet me at 1 o'clock, and I'll pick you up, and we're going to take you somewhere else to get you away from your pimp. And sometimes the pimps would catch him and beat him up, and sometimes get him out. But anyway, it was, it was pretty cool. When Peter preaches to the, not getting beat up, right, but when, when Peter preaches to this Gentile in Acts 10, his name, his name is Cornelius. Cornelius isn't searching. He's not looking. He's probably happy with himself and all the good works of his religion he is doing. And it's God who shows up, sends an angel and says, go send for Peter to tell you about the good news of the gospel. And when Peter shows up, he goes, why'd you send for me? And Cornelius says, well, I sent for you because God first sent for me. And told me to send for you. And this is why we're calling today's message a witness that astounds us. Because it's God's witness about himself, what he is doing throughout the entire scriptures. That God is coming and offering salvation and love and grace to his people, to Cornelius, to prostitutes, and to us. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Uh, Jesus had to do some amazing miracles to get these people that he called stubborn throughout the entire Old Testament to begin to grow and be that promised blessing to the earth that he called them to be. I also think this is why hard times come into our lives, because God is trying to break us so that we become moldable and pliable so he can make us into the people he intends for us to be. And when you think something horrible about somebody else, I'm not talking about their actions yet. You can judge their actions, but like the core of who they are as a human being, 
you start to become just like the Israelites. You start to put yourself above everyone else and think, I'm so much better than they are. And so here you get to see this stubborn early church and how Peter comes back to Jerusalem and they begin to change. Acts 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. That doesn't happen in a church. What? No way. People criticize one another in a church? No. Yeah, okay. So th- these, these, the circumcision party, these are the guys who are committed. They're like, Back to the Bible Club, King James Version only. I mean, they they taught that no matter where you were in your life, if you came to follow God, you needed to get circumcised. If you don't know what that is, it's where you cut the foreskin off a penis. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it, but make sure your safe search is on so you don't get all the things you aren't supposed to get. And this is the way for them to say, oh, this is how you belong to God. Everybody belong to God by, by doing this. Now, we live under grace today because if you told a lot of guys, if you want to go to heaven and they're not circumcised, you've got to circumcise yourself, they would say, hell is fine. That's just what, what they'd say. But you've got to understand, when God did this, this is a covenant of grace to his people. Uh, they had the, the kids get circumcised at eight days old. I think partly so you don't remember it. <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, so... God is calling his men to be different. And really, if this part of a man's anatomy is committed to God, all of him is committed to God. Because if, if you're out fooling around with your girlfriend or maybe even with a prostitute, and if uh, or Israel would pull down their pants, they'd be like, what's up with that? <laughs> I know in our culture, okay, like almost every dude is circumcised, but in that culture, nobody was except there's like, what's up with that? And it was supposed to make the guy go, yeah. What's up with that? I am called to be different. My life is meant to be different. My life is meant to be God's. And what you understand in this is that that place on a man is where he does his greatest good and his greatest evil. It is porn, adultery, fornication, but also where he will help make children. I mean, when God decided to brand his men, that's where he did it. That is a big deal for a Jew. So so the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How do they know that? Because every Gentile is uncircumcised. It's not like Peter walked in and goes, okay, drop your pants. I can eat with you, with you, not with you, not with you. You can come to dinner too. No, every Gentile is uncircumcised because they, it's just so awkward and weird to even think about it today, right? It's like, man, that was just, this was an awkward conversation in the early church. Yes, it was. And so it's, it's the idea they're all, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Even now, I brought my mom to church. She made you, she know what it is. She knows what it is. Okay, so. Okay, we're going to use next service podcast, by the way. So anyway, this becomes not an issue so much of eating. It becomes an issue of, of racism, of prejudice, of prejudice. C.S. Lewis writes, when he was a small boy, he told his dad, I am prejudiced against the French. And his dad said, why? And he said, if I knew that, I wouldn't be prejudiced. Because prejudice means you prejudge somebody. You're prejudging. That's the word. It's when you made up your mind about somebody else, even when you don't have all the facts. You know, it's political season, and that, all, that is all political season is. Prejudgment. That's all that it is. I mean, liberals do it to conservatives. Conservatives do it to liberals. Christians do it to atheists. Atheists do it to Christians. And most of the time, we back up our prejudice by not finding out the truth about everything. We just find little things that agree with us. And that's what we go. I call those Facebook posts, by the way. And 
And then in the ancient world, this happened as well. Jews would tell these stories about all the wicked things Gentiles did. Like even if a Gentile was a God-fearer like Cornelius, maybe he even was circumcised. What they would also say was, well, you can't eat with them because Gentiles force their women to have abortions. And they take those fetuses and they bury them under the floorboards of their house. So you can never go eat with them. Now, that's not true. But that's what they told each other at the time. Gentiles would tell each other that Jews were stuck up because they wouldn't eat pork. Pork was the cheapest meat in the marketplace at the time. And since Jews wouldn't eat it because it was prohibited in the Old Testament law, they said, oh, well, they're too good to eat like those commoners. They just think they're so much better than we are. This is one of the reasons a couple weeks ago when God shows this vision to Peter about all these things are now clean. It kind of freaks Peter out a little bit. But he goes, okay, because now Peter gets to eat lobster, shrimp, and the glorious bacon. It is awesome. It is awesome. Uh, the Gentiles also said that Jews were lazy because they insisted on a day off of work every single week called the Sabbath. I mean, imagine what they would say about us. Right? We, we want our weekends off, a couple days off, and then we want every holiday. And we want our bosses to pay us for that holiday we take off. I want to take time off. You should pay me. Yeah, they would be like, you guys are weird. And this is what they said. Oh, you know, these are lazy. And these prejudices, they went back and forth and back and forth because nobody cared what the truth actually was, except for God. God is the one who cared what the truth was. And so the circumcision party is doing this thing. They're prejudging. Without even hearing Peter's story, what's happening, they start to criticize him. So unlike us. So unlike us. Yet God is trying to show his people that his invitation to true and real life is open to everyone. This responding to this invitation changes our lives. The book of Acts shows how the church changes. Our lives are changed day by day by day. God's people are meant to live out repentance, forgiveness, baptism, receiving of the Spirit, being God's witnesses to the world. And it's an important point here that God is not a God who says, live however you want, all religions are the same. He doesn't say that. Acceptance by God is not an acceptance of what we do. It is that in Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection, we become acceptable to God. It is God who accepts us. We don't accept Jesus. God accepts us as his people. Our sin that separates us from God and each other is dealt with at the cross. Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul says how God has humiliated the Jews and the Gentiles both at the cross because Jews lose their perceived privileged position and Gentiles must recognize a Jewish Messiah. The point is not tolerance, is that in Christ, God has removed our sin and we must acknowledge him and surrender to him if we are ever to live a life of humility because then we will know why we needed and were saved. That's why we talked about wisdom last week. So, Acts 11, verse 4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. He's like, calm down. Let me explain what's going on. Verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now, I talked about this in depth about three weeks ago in a message called A Common Vision. If you messed it, Missed it, go listen to it, and it'll make a whole bunch more sense. I don't have time here. Verse 9. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This is where we say, Yay, bacon! Verse 10. 
This happened three times, and I was drawn up again to heaven, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. That goes directly to the vision he just had. These six brothers also accompanied me. So Peter, apparently, when he's telling them the story, says, I've got six guys right here. They're all Jews. They went with me. They can testify to this. And we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, and you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, that you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Great words. Who are we that we get to stand in God's way? We cannot. And then it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is a huge life-altering statement in the early church, that everyone is welcome. Now, a couple weeks ago, when I talked about this, I told you that Tim Keller says true conversion usually comes about by a challenge to religion, because it's not about your goodness and what you do. It's about God being the one who calls and draws us and saves us. And what I meant by that was when the angel goes to Cornelius, and he has him send for Peter, the angel doesn't show up and say, oh, because you're so smart, and because you got it all put together, you got all these good things, God has to let you into heaven. You're such a good person because good people go to heaven. No, the angel says to Cornelius, you are one of the good ones. You're given to the poor and the needy, but you know what? You still need to surrender and believe in Jesus. You need to be converted. You need to be born again. It's like the same thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus goes to Jesus and said, you're a teacher sent from God. Nicodemus is just like Cornelius. He's a good guy. He is very accomplished. Cornelius and Nicodemus are both men of wealth. they got impeccable credentials. Neither one of them is really that self-righteous. If you were here last week and we did our you know, scale on humility, 1 to 10, they'd be like a 7 or an 8. They're really, really good guys. And, and they're not proud or self-righteous men. Cornelius wants to learn. Nicodemus wants to learn. They don't have this attitude toward Jesus. A lot of other religious people do. And yet, what are they both told? That their good works don't save them. It is Jesus who saves, and you've got to be born again. Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, oh, you're a great person, you know the Bible, you're so moral, you're so spiritual, so religious. Man, perfect, just keep doing that. That's not what Jesus says. He says you've got to be born again. That is an image for conversion and surrendering our lives to Jesus. This is what we've been talking about the last few weeks. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, be better. He says, Nicodemus, be born again. And it's like you start from scratch, you start over, you let God remake you into who he intends for you to be. Now, this is not how we typically think. It's not how the people in the early church thought till God changed them. When we think of born again, we think that's for people who are really, really bad, those horrible people. But Nicodemus and Cornelius, if you met them face to face, you'd think they're put together way better than you. Well, way better than me, anyway. They, you, know, you just think, well, those guys are amazing. They, you would think they already were on Jesus' team. You'd be like, look what they did. They're as good as you could be, and yet the angel says to Cornelius, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must surrender to Jesus. When the average person today hears born again, we think like 60s hippies or something like that. When you hear the words converted, it sounds like someone's trying to force you to do something you don't want to do. Because we think it's a call to become more moral and more religious. Be circumcised. Let me see your foreskin. We think it's something like that. Like, oh, it's a call to traditional values. But that can't be what it is. 
Because you look at Cornelius and Nicodemus or the Apostle Paul or all the people that Jesus saves in the book of Acts. Most of them had traditional values coming out the wazoo or coming out the foreskin. They must have had these traditional values coming out everywhere. And yet they're still being called to be born again. Keller writes this. He says, The Christian call to conversion is not a call to morality and religion. It's a challenge to morality and religion. Because the Bible says that the human race, that's all of us in case you're foggy about that, the human race always wants to place themselves in the, in the place of God. And if you get down to the inner heart issue of almost everybody, if you can just gauge the heart, you'd see we constantly want to be in God's place. We want to choose what is right and wrong for ourselves and what is right and wrong for everybody else. There's ways that we do this. One way is we break all the moral rules. And the other way is that we keep all the moral rules. One way is to say, I'm going to live however I want. It doesn't matter what I do. You can't tell me no because it feels good. I'm going to do it and just run off that direction. The other way is to be absolutely moral and say, oh, because I'm so good, I'm going to earn my salvation. God has to let good people in. That's how it works. And one way makes you a criminal, and the other way makes you self-righteous, a stuck-up Pharisee. Or you become a person who's so guilty because you can never live up to your own set of morals. But both approaches, as different as they look, are really the exact same thing. They're ways to be your own Savior and your own God. They both make your little world as miserable as, as it can be. And the entire world around you becomes miserable because we have to be around you. It's like, it's like oh no, another bender, i got to go pick him up. Oh no, another speech about how wonderful they are and how dumb I am. Great. It's, it's the same thing. Some of the most religious people, I think, have the bigger problem. Because you say to them, you need to be born again. Your life needs to be centered to, the, centered to the grace and goodness of Jesus. Be converted. And they say, why? And you say, because you're lost. And you're a mess. And you think you're so much better than you actually are. And they would go, no, no, no. But have you seen me? I am like Tony the Tiger. I'm great. They might even think they're the best person they've ever met. They may even live a more moral life than you. But most people who say, I'm a good person, I'm okay, are usually the worst off because they don't see how lost they are in their own godhood. Think about this. If the gospel is true, the good news of Jesus, which it is, and you're not saved by your own works by God's grace, then the ones who think they're okay and they have it all together are the ones who don't. And the ones who realize they're not okay are the ones who are starting to get it. C.S. Lewis writes this book called The Great Divorce. And it's this parable in there about, it's got this busload of people from hell who are like ghosts, and they go to the outskirts of heaven, and these bright people from heaven, not bright as in smart, but bright as in shiny. Shiny! Bubble boy, anybody? Okay, whatever. Uh, so they come out, and, they, and, the, and, the, and these bright people go, and they start talking to them on this bus. And now, again, C.S. Lewis is not telling you this is what he thinks the afterlife is like. Don't b- build theology on this. All it is is a parable for how we see God or fail to see God. So at one place in, in the book, uh, this ghost from hell meets a person from heaven that he knew in life. And the guy from heaven, the bright person, is like, you need to stop thinking how wonderful you are. You need to simply surrender and trust in the grace and the goodness of God. And this is what the guy from hell says. He goes, look at me. I've gone straight all my life. It's older English. It's not like C.S. Lewis doesn't know how to write. Okay, this is older English. Go with it. Uh, I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I'd done my best all my life. I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job. That's the sort I was. I'm asking for nothing but my rights. I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here, that's heaven, long ago. And you can tell them I said so. Because the man thinks it's about good works. I'm a good enough person, therefore God has to do these things. It's all about becoming your own God. 
See, C.S. Lewis says that the gospel is true. Your conversion doesn't even really begin until you realize the difference between what it means to be born again and what it means to be good, what it means to be moral and religious, what it means to trust Jesus for your goodness. Again, if the gospel is true, the ones who think they are spiritually okay probably are not. And the ones who understand that they have never been spiritually okay are like the prostitutes and the sinners who flock to Jesus. And this is what is beginning to happen in the early church. They're beginning to understand this, that it is, we are not better than those people. God is calling those people in. And so when Peter goes and starts to talk about this, it could have literally ripped the early church apart. But what you see is Peter tells his story. He's like, I get it, guys. I was just like you. I was thinking, there's no way those people could be saved. Look how messed up they are. Think of 9-11. Look how messed up they are. There's no way that God could love them like he loves us. Oh, my goodness. And yet God comes in and he saves them. And the early church gets blown away by this. And I think they start to understand what salvation means and how it comes. Because when Peter is done talking about this, this is what happens, Acts 11, 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. That's like the cliffhanger at the end of your favorite TV show season. It's like, what's going to happen? Because they fell silent. It's like, what's the next step? And then, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Beautiful words. Beautiful words. And Peter ends up baptizing everybody in Cornelius' household with water. That is also something that's shocking because that's a statement of being included into the family of God. Peter reminds them in Acts eleven sixteen. he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, that you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When, when this quote, it's actually from Luke three sixteen. It's actually a long one. It says, The Holy Spirit and fire. Now, Luke writes both Luke and the book of Acts. So you see some of these things kind of come together between the two books, how these things go back and forth. In Luke chapter 9, he tells a story about Jesus and his disciples. They're going through Samaria, and these Samaritans wouldn't let him stay anywhere. They're nasty. They're hostile to Jesus. And the disciples say, well, you're a prophet. Look how bad they are. So how about you let us call down fire from heaven and destroy them? That'll really show them the love of God. <laughs> That's a joke, okay? Uh, my goodness. So Jesus later brings us all back together with them, and this is what he says in Luke 12, 49 and 50. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. This refers to God's judgment. And, I, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress. And that word distress means to be crushed under the weight of something until it is accomplished. Now, you probably don't understand what that means. This is what is called Semitic parallelism. I know, big dime store words. I'll tell you what that actually means. It's when something is said twice, and the second time refers back to the first time so that it begins to come together and make a little more sense. So what Jesus says is, don't call down fire upon these sinners. And then he goes on to say, because I have come to bring fire on the earth, the fire of God's judgment. And then in that, he talks about his own death and the weight of sin that we placed upon him and that he'd be crushed under the weight of it. Because on the cross, Jesus took the fire of God's judgment. Jesus took the punishment for our sin, all the things that we made ourselves God in our own life, all the ways that we have rejected him, all of our own self-righteousness, Jesus takes on himself so we could have the fire of God's power to be his witnesses in the world. This is what is happening in the book of Acts. When Peter talks about baptisms, it's so strong in the early church because they understood that Jesus said he was going to be baptized with the fire of God's judgment so that we could be baptized with God's love and power. And on the cross, Jesus was baptized. Jesus was immersed into, the God, into God's absence. 
so that we who believe be immersed into God's presence. And that immersion was meant for us to go and extend to all people. Jesus got the baptism of fire and judgment so we could have God's power of acceptance and love and hope and grace. I mean, if you've never been baptized and you'd like to be, we're doing baptisms October 16th. There's going to be a baptism information class two weeks on September 25th after every service. You're more than welcome to come to that. But when we understand, like the early church, like Peter, these things, it throws a wrench into our rights to how we judge people around us. The understanding of God's witness of what he is doing in all these people's lives is to remind us of the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because that is what changes everyone and everything. That's what we should be speaking of. It changed the early church. It changed Peter. It changed Paul. It changed Cornelius. It changed Nicodemus. It changed the circumcision party that criticized Peter. And it is meant to change us. That is what changes us. God's witness about himself. This is what we are called to be witnesses to. The gospel. The good news. God's judgment came down on Jesus for our sin. And at that moment, the fire of God's beauty and power and love and grace come to those who believe. That is a witness that astounds us. It is done first by God because we always get ourselves in the way. We always have this thing that stands between us and other people. We call this sin. We call it prejudgment. We call it racism. We call it all kinds of things. But it's what stands between us and other people. And it makes us think, there's no way God would love them. Why would I even talk to them? Why would I share the witness of the good news of God with them? Because they're so jacked up. And we totally forget that we are the people who are jacked up too. That we are so messed up. And yet God comes and rescues and saves us. And sends us to be those who are going out to be his witnesses to the world. This is why we talk about communion every week. It's that place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me because we were so far away. And by his grace, by his dying and taking our judgment, he gives us God's peace. And we get to be a people who live in that peace and that goodness. The band's going to come up. As they do, we might take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer... I mean, I think one of the good questions to ask yourself this week is probably what stands between you and somebody else? What is your circumcision issue? I mean, I, I highly doubt your issue is, oh my goodness, they still have their foreskin. I highly doubt that's your issue, okay? But we all have an issue. We all have something that's going to block us off from wanting to share the gospel with somebody else. You, maybe you've got a, got a weirdo redneck neighbor down the street, and you're like, oh, that guy has... Million cars on their lot. What's up with that guy? Or maybe you are the redneck neighbor and you're like, that guy keeps his house clean. What's up with that guy? You know, I don't, whatever it is, we all have something we're trying to judge somebody else for and we think that cuts them off from God's love and grace. What is that in your life? What is that block that God needs to do to you what he did to Peter and the early church to begin to change that? So you begin to see the witness, the astounding witness that he calls us into. They would love to pray with you about that. There's offering boxes on the side of one in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. There's some food. I saw someone walking around with some donuts earlier in the back. Grab something to eat, meet some other people, and start to ask some of those questions. Go a little bit deeper. Be honest enough to share where you prejudge. And if, and if you say you don't, search your heart deeper, because I guarantee you we all do. Someone sent me this, this video 
this week, and it was and it was some guys in the Middle East, and they were beating this dog. I I love animals, and so and I've been bothered all week by this video. And my first thought when I see it is, okay, where do they live? We're gonna, I'm gonna get my gun. We're gonna go take care of this right now. I mean that 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 is literally my first thought. And and I and as you know, this message is we're working through it this week before this morning. I start to really think about where does God want me to begin. He wants me to start praying for them. I mean, what would be better than someone going and taking them out would be then them believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus changing them and their families and their homes and their cities becoming those who center themselves on Jesus and the entire world is unified because we are centered around the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's where I want to go. But quite honestly, I don't always go there. I just think, we got a nuke. You know, we just, just drop it. We'll figure this out later. And, but that can't be where I go. And so I, got to, I struggle with it too. It's not like I'm like, guys, I'm so perfect. Look at me. I love everybody. No, no. You hurt my dog, I will hurt you. You hurt my wife, I will bury you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just how it works. And, and I really, I need to begin to be better. But that comes about by living in community with one another by dealing with it with, with one another so we can share those things and people help us all from going off the deep end and learning how to begin to be in love and pray for these people as we should, especially on our remembrance of day like 9-11. We must become a people like the early church who understood what God is doing and what he continues to do. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who see you as you really are, that we would begin to understand the great salvation that you have given to us. And that in that, we would begin to be a people who live as your witnesses, who live as those who speak of your goodness. And God, we know that there is times that we have to stand up and we do have to fight in certain instances. But I ask that you begin to change our hearts so our first response isn't that. Our first response is sharing the hope of who you are and the grace that you bring. For all of us in our lives, I ask you to begin to show us the places where we prejudge. We metaphorically want to ask people about their foreskin instead of asking them about their lives that you would bring us to a place where we see your image in others rather than our preconceptions. And that in that, we would honor you because we would speak and be your witnesses. That you would teach us, just like Harvey Kahn, that you would teach us the best way to speak into our friends' lives around us about your hope. And that when we say things like there must be more than this in our lives, that we understand there is. There is living on mission with others for your name in this world. And that you would use us to be a people that so speak about you that the whole world would know who you are. And true unity would come not because of politics and not because the right people get elected and not because everybody thinks the same way we do. It's that everybody has surrendered their lives to you. Because you are the one who saves us. And you are the one who redeems us. Teach us to live in that great redemption. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.